0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On podcast. I'm really excited about this one because I've got a little bit of a treat for you. Um, I've actually got my good buddy EJ from Oklahoma on the line. And uh, how are you doing, dude? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm awesome. Yeah, I'm good. Um, hopefully our connection stays good. I guess I got to give you. I always hate it when people kind of give me the the intro and kind of read my my bio while I'm while i'm on the air but i'm gonna have to do it to you sorry (laughs) that's fine i'll chime in if you do anything wrong (laughs) all right well more or less you were you grew up around golf i know your dad was a club pro you're pretty much raised on a golf course um you know i remember you telling me that your bus would pretty much drop you off there but uh you're pretty much a two-time winner you went to Oklahoma State, uh, which I guess I can't hold against you. You beat, you beat the ISU guys last week. Well, we gave it to you anyway, but um, you're a two-time national. We appreciate it. Yeah. You're two-time NCAA champion, and uh, you played professionally for 10 years. I know that. You were on the PGA Tour, um, but you started teaching, and kind of what drew me to you, and, and actually we'll get into how you and I met um, years ago, but... You started teaching for Jim McLean um, and the PGA out in California, and I know that you've taught a ton of PGA and LPGA um, and tour players, and I know you've been Golf Magazine's top 100 golf instructors or on the top 100 golf instructors list um, for quite a while. Uh, I don't know how good I did, but that's – that's how I how I gave you your lead in. Hopefully it was, hopefully it was under, I guess at least par for you.
1: Yeah, no, no, that was fine. I um, yeah, the AJGA was where we got our start. That was, um, and now they're the largest junior golf organization in the in the world. Um, that's how you would get your exposure to try to attempt to get college golf scholarships because that's where the coaches would go. So. Um, I was fortunate enough to have some success there. And, and back then, it was there was only two universities, really, Oklahoma State and Houston. And I know I wasn't going to Houston. I was just a small-time guy. So I um, was, uh, was blessed to have some opportunities to make some choices about different colleges after taking my recruiting trips and, and something in my heart said I needed to go to Oklahoma State. And if you want to win national championships, and, and fortunately, um, I was able to win a team one and an individual, which... kind of led into my, obviously feeling like I had a chance to play on the PGA Tour, but that dream didn't come. For a little while after that, I had to play in Asia and Australia, Uh, 89 and 90, you would leave in January, Johnny wouldn't come home for four months, it was the only place to go, so (laughs) you would travel all over the world with 50 of your best friends, and, and I think that's just where the teaching started too, because you didn't have the resources that you have now for instructors. So we pretty much taught each other and we relied on each other to try to get better. And you did it through observation, talking, asking questions, and then just practicing your tail off. My dad taught me the value of of work ethic. You know, I was around good players because all he taught was good players. So I, I, kind of grasped that part, but he kept drilling into me the importance of repetition and, and I think archery is similar from a repetition side. I think it's a highly repetitious sport. Um, and then in 92, when I had my PJ Tour card, I was on a treadmill, believe it or not, with a guy named Tim Simpson, who was very good friends with the PSE guys. And we were just on the bike, and he asked me what I like to do, and I said, my passion's hunting. He goes, do you archery hunt? And I said, no, I've never had a mentor for it, but I would love to do it. So we started to go to bow shops every week. He would take me to a bow shop to learn more and more and more, and then one day Pete Shepley sent me a bow, arrived at my door, all set up, ready to go, and that was late in ninety two and since then, um I've just been a fanatic about archery, yeah that's and a- I think the two the two cross over from a from a mindset side because you know you guys have to work at it hard, there's all different scenarios. You could have perfect technique, but if you're in a bow stand bent over thirty degrees, that flat ground practice doesn't do you much good. Some of it crosses over, but you know, same for us. We could have a perfect golf swing and in the first hole you have a downhill line to a twenty mile an hour wind. You've got to make those adjustments. Yeah. So yep. it's been fascinating progression of my archery and plus then your podcast came and my, my technique has improved dramatically. I talk to a friend all the time. I wish these podcasts would have started 10 years ago. I would have a lot better trophy room <laughs> if I would have had your your podcast 10 years ago. So I appreciate everything you do, too, because um, your passion for learning and teaching and communicating and sharing, I think, is fantastic. So I'm excited to be on.
0: Yeah, well, I know you and I met... God, I can't even remember. Do you know how long ago we met?
1: That was probably... Um, it was seven years ago because I had lived here one year and Gudge called and said that I had a piece of property that had some turkeys and he wanted to know if it was all right, if you could come over and, and give him a shot and I said sure. <laughs> so it was seven years ago.
0: Well, I know, I know you and I got to do some archery or I, I worked with you one one day, I was kind of trying to pay you back for permission on the turkey hunt and because I've always I've always enjoyed golf kind of as my, it's been my, my mental break. Um, actually, my weight training and golf have always been my way to kind of get completely out of the archery side of things because there's just times where um, you talked about a lot of things that you did already that kind of brought a lot of flashbacks um, to me from when I traveled on the tour but I think one thing that's really important and something that I, that Frank Zane taught me um, was he taught me a formula for success that he teaches to uh, professional bodybuilders is P equals earn and you know or I think he I think his was uh, was V equals earn. victory is you know you have to earn it with your exercise your attitude. Um, your rest, recuperation, and then your nutrition. And, you know, that rest and recuperation, it's not just about your physical rest. It's also about your mental rest as well. And I'm kind of in one of those phases right now. I'm in a phase where um, I was really, really focused on shooting a lot, training, preparing my shots, and just really focused on um, my – my physicality and my training and just really getting in perfect shape. Um, I came out of the summer probably in the best shape I've been in uh, my whole life. And then I was really mentally ready for the hunting season to come. And I knew that this year in particular, um, just because of the way I drew tags and I had to organize my hunts with different places that I go at different times I knew that I was only gonna um, well I knew I was gonna be on the road almost 40 days just constantly you know eating limited foods and I knew on a lot of these uh, western hunts that I did you know it's pretty common for me to average eight to ten miles a day so I haven't been I haven't been physically as active as what I would like to and I haven't like shot the high reps that i would like to but you have to you kind of have to go through those cycles and understand where you're at because it prevents it prevents you getting burned out as well you know if you take those Mm -hmm. types of rests
1: yeah and i think um you bring up a good point about mental rest because i break it into two parts i think there's a conscious and subconscious i think when you're, training there is. Park, you're, in the, you're in that <laughs> conscious mind. Yeah. You're in the conscious mind a lot and that gets you more exhausted. And, and when I go to sleep, I ask the student to hang out in the subconscious. That's where you can ingrain more because the, the subconscious does, does not understand between fantasy and reality. So you can hang out more in that subconscious mind, make reps, look at visualizing routine create the shot scenario you might have on the elk, the white tail, whatever it might be. Um, and your subconscious actually makes those reps so that you have more confidence when you wake up the next day. I tell people all the time, you can get better in your sleep as long as you know where to hang out while you're trying to go to sleep. So I ask them to hang out in the conscious mind when they're ingraining the skill in the subconscious mind, when they're trying to get ready to close the deal and ingrain confidence and, and, um, in self-image, because I think self-image is important for us. About 10% of the guys win 90% of the, ter- the tournaments. And it's because they're they're hanging out in the subconscious, working on the self-image so that when they come out, that instills stronger confidence. So it's a chain reaction.
0: Yeah, I agree 100% with that. I think there's a lot of times where, well, just today, actually, I posted, I made a post um, just about, This time of year, and one thing that I really like is um, Joe Rogan kind of got me geeked out with kettlebells, and I ended up taking um, a long weekend and going down to the Onnit Academy down in Austin, and there was just several uh, fitness ninjas down there that kind of gave me, I I was with those guys I think about eight hours a day for, I think I was there three or four days and they just really showed me some super cool movements to use kettlebells which i really like because you don't really need that many of them and i can do them i have a set here at my house and now i've bought a set for um at my my shooting range as well so if i'm if i'm at the house or if i'm at my range i can just um kind of jump into doing an easy uh, routine without really having to, to go too far away from it. But I also, what I really like about things like that, or what I've liked about kettlebells or like this steel mace and stuff is you can, you can use low weight and just really focus on repetition. And if you do it, it, if you do repetition enough and you're really there like you said if you if you're focusing on the the process and the technique with the conscious mind and really making sure that you're kind of getting into this system and getting into this rhythm then what happens is eventually it'll it'll just transfer over into a subconscious process to where you all of a sudden just find yourself in this in this I call it like a dream state where I'm I'm just my mind's you know thinking about I've had times where I've been in the gym or I've been at practice and I'm just sitting there going through repetition to the point where I'm just almost like daydreaming about tournaments that I that are coming up and I've almost recreated scenes that ended up becoming reality where I know that there's possible matches that I might end up f- finding a head-to-head with this guy and I know it's going to come down to the last two arrows and I'm just mentally going through these things and there's often times where I can't really do it with my bow but there's often times where I'm weightlifting where I'm just really focusing on the mind-muscle connection and the movement so much that I can I can just close my eyes and I almost get into this this dream state where I'm just developing this really finite connection between the smallest muscle groups and you you just have this really intense mental awareness. You're almost daydreaming, however, you're doing so many positives for yourself as a competitor if you can get into those states, and I think a lot of people really struggle to uh, to do that, unfortunately. I think a lot of people are, you know, they don't, I don't think they really try to go that deep to where they get lost in their repetition and lost in their practice or their training.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think, um, and there's some elements to that. Um, they may not train properly. They may not have there has to be a task and a, and a plan. Um, first, you have to lay out the plan, I think, and then and I execute the ta- task. And if you do that, then there's a sense of gratification at the end, which in turn creates confidence. But I think, um, like for a tournament, we have different, we break it down into different training segments. In the beginning, early on, there'll be a mechanics perspective to that. And that's where we're, we're really working on technique. And we stay in that mode until the student says, I feel the difference. And what that is, is that is a cue that that student is telling me they now feel the difference between the movement pattern that was incorrect and the movement pattern that was correct. So once I hear that, then we move to what I call the learning phase. Because now I want them to give me grades on how well they did at making the movement pattern that's the good one, that's the one we want. Because I now hold them accountable and what we're finding in learning is the more you can pose questions and challenges and they give you answer and feedback, it makes them more aware, it engages them more on what needs to happen so in turn they're learning. So now when they they give me feedback and they say that was an A and I can validate that through different technology that I have in my teaching center, that tells me that we're moving in the right direction. And then we start to work on confidence. And then we also move from what we call random practice or block practice, which is for you guys it would be standing at like 20 yards, shoot an arrow, shoot an arrow, shoot an arrow, shoot an arrow. Well, once you have the technique, now you move to random. And I'll move to different random for instance, I'll have them hit a low draw or a high fade. I'll have them hit a 7 iron 150. I'll have them hit an 8 iron 130. And I keep it totally random because now we want the diligence that we've done from the mechanical perspective, learning the new skill, to transition over to the play part. So if I can keep them in the play and the random, that helps us walk to the first tee and carry that skill over because we're no longer in the block practice. We're in random, and random is more like real golf. So then the brain goes, well, heck, we've been playing golf now for X amount of hours, days, or weeks. So that's how we we lay out the process and move through it to get them ready for play. And then the whole time we're working on self-image and confidence, and then we can get into process too.
0: Yep, yeah, that's a super a super good way to do it. There's, you know, I'm I I have certain students that I work with that are. Well, you're probably like me. You have some people that you really look at that you work with that are strictly like a business style relationship where, you know, they've hired you specifically as a coach and, you know, it's, you kind of really, it's like a business relationship. But then I also have a very limited number of friends that I offer to work with and i you know, I don't want to say that I put more into it, but I feel like I have more of a relationship vested in seeing them get better, and I almost want it for them more. Um, and there's, you know, there's so many people that want to come and learn, but I also know that there's time-wise, I have to say no way more than I say yes, and when I have those people that I work with, sometimes. They work with you until they get to that part where they where they recognize, okay, I understand now what you're looking for. Like I know what the good shot is, um, and sometimes they start to feel like they can get it totally on their own without having that self check um, from someone that's looking at it from an outside perspective. And I feel like they start to they eventually start to slide. Um, because they're so focused on maybe those first few things that you taught them and they don't realize that there's actually a system to your madness. At least for me, I start out with certain things, and I I always start out with taking everything away and going back to the basics of what the process is and really try to develop an understanding of, okay, this is you know, I try to find that perfect shot. And once they find that, it's like, okay, now this is your bar. This is your standard. So everything from here on out, this is, you're going to strive to repeat that same type of feeling. But oftentimes, even though people know what that is, they fail to continue to be checked at like you said at the randoms because it's one thing to sit there and teach someone a perfect shot at 20 yards but then they to then get that same feeling when you're at 50 or 70 which for archers the further away you go the more you start to break things down you know and it's funny the more precise you seem to have to be the more people start to to just fade away from the basic elements of what makes that good shot and they start to almost try to apply more things that really aren't important and they they end up missing not because it's a harder shot they miss because they're they're not looking at it as the same as when we were at that basic thing and I think for golf at least from my perspective when I watch people you know you you look at how people approach a driver or the, the smallest of putts, and it seems like it makes the biggest difference. But technique-wise, it should really be the same. It's what elements that they bring in from their mind, I think, that uh, really change their performance overall. Do you agree?
1: Oh, yeah, and I think, I think the frustrated student that, that you and I, I think we're talking about the same individual, and that's the individual to me that every time they make a shot, after you've spent an hour or two with them, they go, what did I do there? I say, listen, Mr. Smith, if you're still asking, what did I do there? We've both failed. There's, a, there, there's some disconnection here in, in the way I'm presenting this to you or the way you're understanding it. Because at this point, you should be going, oh, I felt that there. I understand what caused that, John. I know why that arrow pulled to the left. My left shoulder or my posture wasn't right. Those students, to me, don't get it. And 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 I lose sleep at night sometimes when I get those because I know when I wrap up with them that they're leaving there going, I need him again tomorrow. And if that's the case, I've failed that student. So the student that seems to excel, and the reason that I think high-level players become high-level players is because impact for me in golf is a learning experience when that ball takes off and I don't know if it's the same for arrow, but when that arrow is released they're gathering data in their head and they're seeing that arrow fly and they're seeing that ball fly and they're tracing it back and there's no emotional attachment to it it's just hey there it goes I'm going to gather the data it's curving slightly to the left so face angle was slightly closed or they're learning from that They're making a rep that either A, like Jim Furyk for us is the ultimate example, he'll do it again, and it'll be A, that was a hell of a golf shot, it's like me to do that, and I'm going to do that all day long, or B, hey, that wasn't my best, but based on my tendencies, this is what I need to do in my adjustments, I'm going to do that, and then they move on. It's not, hey, I suck, I can't believe I hit a shot like that. How the heck can you do that? That's the amateur mentality, so in turn, the learning curve takes twice as long. And, and that's just my perception of being around high-level players, and I don't know if you would, you would agree from an archery perspective. When you make that release, are you processing information? as that thing's on the way to the target, or are you going, God, that shot sucked. I can't believe I did that. You or know. are you going, hey, my <laughs> posture or whatever, you know? I mean, And that's what I think separates high-level players that continually get better from the amateur, that doesn't get better. They're, they're struggling. They want the answer. They want the quick fix. They don't engage in the process and they don't ever build self confidence and they're not learning.
0: Yep. Yeah. They're, you're definitely right. I think there's a really, there's a line there too that there's certain people. I know for me, I'm a high level athlete and I do process things that way, but it's taken me a long time to get there. And it's also taken me to be around someone that I trust and someone that understands my same type of mistakes enough to point those out a few times because I think even though I've taught people how to shoot properly and I think, you know, I can, I've got a, a guy right now that I work with quite often and and he is able to tell me when he's making a mis- mistake or he's able to say, hey, I was shooting pretty bad for a while today, but, you know, all of a sudden I realized that I was like doing this with my grip and I changed that and just, man, I just started pounding them for an hour. So it's good that people can, rec- you know, a student can start to break down those things and understand why they might be missing consistently and then figure that out. That's a big part of becoming a pro. And and I don't know if you've heard in the podcast, but I've talked about, you know, the especially at some of our indoor tournaments, where you're really not able to miss, um, you know, perfection is really what it takes to put yourself into contention. Um, the difference between the people that are in the the shoot offs for the championships and the ones that aren't, a lot of times, is they made a mistake and they got away with it, but they were able to. Be aware that they got lucky that that arrow hit and they were able to correct that mistake before they did it again. Or sometimes at tournaments where you know the scores are high but they're not perfect, the people that you know the people that are on top versus the ones that don't make the shoot off the difference is they probably made the same mistake at some point in the tournament, but a really good tournament archer. Is gonna make a mistake, and as soon as that arrow hits the paper, or as soon as the release breaks, and that arrow's still even going through the bow in that fraction of a second, in their mind, they're already recognizing too much heel pressure on my hand. And the arrow's leaving, they see the arrow go high, and then the next shot, they're like, okay, even pressure in the front you know, they make that correction to where they're not missing two, three, four, and then all of a sudden now they're mentally cracked and they're trying to gain ground. And then they start to break down. You're on this real dangerous, slippery slope because you've dug a hole for yourself. The people that really stand out and are on the top consistently, they're not perfect. They're just aware of not repeating the same mistake twice. And I think if people can get to that, then they're gonna be on a whole new level from a from an archery point of view as well.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's it's us assessing as instructors their personality and their learning style so that um 'cause I, I, I you know, I still have lessons, like I said, and you probably have the same where you come home and you're thinking about it and you go, That wasn't my best effort. There was there was a disconnect there. I've gotta figure that out. And I want another opportunity to helping that individual. And, and you're learning as much from them as they are from you. So, yeah, I think, um, I think you're right on with um, that interpretation. But I think we're both the same as far as the students that excel, it's how they process that and the adjustments that they make. And for some, it might just be a breathing issue. And I spent a lot of time with Lanny Basham because he helped one of the students I was teaching, he's an Olympic medalist in shooting. He oh yeah, lost I, know. I know Lanny. I didn't. Know. Yeah, in I didn't seventy-two. Know yeah, he was. He was, I guess, one of the best on the planet. He went to the the Olympics and didn't didn't gold. I think he got silver, and then he went on this quest to figure out why, and it had nothing to do with technique. It was all mindset and processing nerves and and running his process. And then the next time he did win the gold, so it, for him it had nothing really to do with technique. It was how to handle handle and process the environment and and get into what what you were talking about as far as a process. And that's, you know, processes are, are important. And so he figured out the right process for him and then won the gold medal.
0: Is his, was his series with winning in mind? Yeah. 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 Lanny, yeah, I worked with Lanny some back when I was competing as well. And um, he actually did some did a project when I was still working at Matthews um, we did a collaboration with him where we we gave out some of those mental um, DVDs with um, with every bow purchase there for a while um, but yeah he had some he has He has a very, very important um, message when it comes to understanding the conscious and the subconscious and also how to, you know, if if the conscious mind triggers a negative thought um, or, you know, a negative impulse, there's also methods on how to to reset that conscious mind into um, into. A direction where you can focus on your process again with the with the conscious and let the subconscious kind of still be able to get in the zone and not not be focusing on the negative aspects of maybe tournament performance. Um, but that's he's got and some. Tell great me this.
1: Tell me this. John. I got a question for you too. Because to me, when you run a process at the end of the process and in, in tournament golf, it's your ability to to get out of your own way and let your awareness be solely on target. Because if you're out of your way, if you're out of your own way, and, it, and to me it stems from breathing, you, you, you exhale and there's, there's about a 15-second moment where the brain's at total clarity and the muscles are totally relaxed based on the information that I've gathered. So I call it a cleansing breath and it clears the mind. That allows all the reps, to me, in my vision, it allows you to be totally athletic, uninhibited, pure motion, without corruption. Now, with the primary focus being to move the object from point A to point B, point B being the primary focus. So for the guys that we work with, the primary needs to be the target. Anything preventing you from getting to that state, you need to step away, step back up once you've done your cleansing breath, clear mind, clear body, relaxed. It's almost a euphoric state for me when I get there because after I do that exhale, I just feel... I feel this calmness come over me and then I know I'm ready to go. But it's the ability to move from there to solely on the target. So your, your mind and body go, okay, he wants the ball to go there and I can do this for him. He's out of my way. I'm going to take over. Does that equate the same to archery as far as when, when you're staring at that 10 ring or that X, is it your ability to get to that point or is it a little different from that perspective?
0: Yeah, it's well, it's funny you say that because one thing that I've done always as an archer is I'll I focus on breathing and I always try to pay attention to my breathing cuz obviously if I'm if I'm short of breath it's probably because my heart rate's high, so I focus on long and deep breaths. But I also um I also inhale and breathe while I'm going through my routine and pretty much I'll breathe normal up until I come uh, right until the point where my tip of my nose is going to my bowstring and my vision is centering my peep and my scope. Once that happens and once my pin acquires the target from that point through my pulling motion which my shot when I'm systematic and very repetitive, like if I'm sitting there practicing and I just, if someone came and watched me while I'm practicing and I'm focused on doing really well, which I posted last year, I posted a YouTube video of me practicing during my 300 rounds. So you can just see my rhythm. Um, I let out my breath. Once I, once my, pin is centered with my scope or my peep and my, and my scope are centered and that pin comes into the X ring. From there, once I engage my trigger and I'm actually going through that pulling motion or going through my movement, I'm just letting my breath pretty much easily exhale and almost deflate. Like I'm not, and I'm, I'm almost It takes 12 to 14 seconds for my shots to fire when I'm very systematic and rhythmatic. So the fact that you're telling me that there's a 15 second time when you let your air out, that you're in that area, I would venture to say that's exactly the area that I'm in when I'm, when I'm focused on training and shooting, I would have to say that I'm in that exact moment um, because I'm not, I'm not consciously breathing at that point. I would, I would say I'm kind of at the point like, like with a balloon where it's stretched out and then it kind of goes down and it starts to get to where the shape of the balloon is and then the air is just kind of slowly going out. It looks like a sheet when you fluff it in the air and it's just barely going down. That's kind of how my breathing is at that aspect. Maybe the natural pressure of my lungs being relaxed is letting my air out. And once I get to the point where I feel like maybe I'm starved of oxygen or that I'm wanting to breathe again, at that point, I know that my shot has taken too long and I haven't actually gone through a smooth process. And if I'm on my game, that's a great point where I mentally reset and recognize the fact that I need to let my bow down and start over and not actually make that shot. Uh, you know, I get to the point where I start to recognize if I've gone beyond that and I'm needing to breathe again. It feels like my vision starts to slightly blur, the pin starts to move around more. Your body's kind of crying for for oxygen and it's just not the time to continue through with that shot. You need to you need to really do your best to recognize you have to reset at that moment. Sometimes the best shot is the one that you don't take.
1: Yeah, correct, and I think that, that's another key for you, and, and the same as high level, there's a, there's a part of recognition there that you've missed your optimal window. And so it's, it's where the amateur would just squeeze it off or the amateur would swing and hit it. And that, that's a miss. Before That had nothing to do with mechanics but they won't recognize that where you're recognizing at a high level players recognize that they're stepping away. They're going to go, I don't want to squeeze that one off. That's not acceptable. I'm going to reorganize, regroup, monitor my breathing. I'm going to go through my process again and get focused on target. So, you know, to me, that's a good learning experience for, for, for amateurs as well. It's not always optimal to squeeze that trigger. You know, you got to recognize that that's part of the learning process.
0: Absolutely. You know, there's been times there's been there's been a few times that I remember specifically to where, you know, well, to back up, I think once you get to a certain level as a professional, you expect like high high quality practice. I mean, certainly there's golfers that have gone out and had you know that they, they'll play phenomenal rounds when they're practicing or they'll make phenomenal shots throughout the day when they're sitting there going through the repetitions. But there's also days, practice days or times where it it's almost a whole new standard above that. And i i've had I've had several during my career. Um, But one that really stands out was when I made my decision to leave Matthews, I left Matthews and I also made up a decision that I was going to take the remainder of that year to really figure out what bow I wanted to shoot because I knew that I was going to go and start working for myself. I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet. I just know that I didn't want to be contained and I didn't want to kind of be a, a one-man band, so to speak. I wanted to be able to to do the things that I wanted to do in life. And so with that, I had made appointments to go and visit all the top bow companies that I had never been because I had only been, you know, I'd been with Matthews for 10 years. I'd been there since I was 18 years old. Um, so I really wanted to just try these other brands and and kind of just get a feel for them and one of my first stops was Hoyt and I don't think I've ever told this story but my first stop was Hoyt and um, a good two friends of mine that I competed with were both engineers there and I couldn't actually go in the Hoyt building because I was still kind of considered an outsider but they brought me two bows to kind of a neutral location, and then I could shoot at Easton because I, you know, I've been with Easton for 20 years. So I went to the Easton factory, and they have a, they had a full feeder range. And at the time, we were still shooting full fetus for target archery. So they built me a bow that they were pretty sure would be a bow that I really really liked and the thing that was so different with Hoyt compared to Matthews is that the bows were so you know they were so customizable you were able to take a riser put many different length limbs on it you could choose several different cam options but they had built one for me and I went there and I set it up and I thought okay I just really want to I was so focused on the feel like trying to my body was just trying to compute like the draw cycle of this bow and how the cam felt and like the response of the bow in my hand and the revis- the residual like the feedback that it gave me the vibration that it gave me and the direction it would go and I was like focused on how my skeletal structure was like kind of expanding at that shot based off like where that bow was taking me. And I was kind of trying to focus on, you know, is there parts of this bow that maybe has more vibration that could lead to like me being worn down or having an injury in the future? You know, there was like, I was, I was 100% committed to making sure that the next bow that I decided to shoot would be the absolute best bow that was meant for me, so the, the I'm getting I'm telling a really long story to this because the bottom line was I wasn't thinking about score I wasn't thinking about performance I was so focused on just setting this bow up I kind of shot it through paper at Easton it shot a really good hole through paper I went and I shot thirty meters then I shot at ninety meters and I um. Kind of got my marks for those two, and then I had a bunch of scales in my little tool bag. So I found a scale that matched 30 and 90, and I taped it on my site so that I knew. So then I kind of just um, I had I had an, an engineer there, and three different people came throughout me shooting that bow because there were several people that were like, "Oh my God, John's shooting a Hoyt. We kind of want to see this." So. I know that Jeff McNeil from Easton came out one time. I know Zach Kurtzall from the engineering lab came out one time and Darren Cooper came by and I shot a full feet around. So a full feet around means you shoot 90, 70, 50, and 30 meters. So for those of you listening, that would be 33 yards, uh, 55 yards, 77 yards, and 99 yards. And... I shot when it was all said and done. I put a brand new face up. I had a brand new big face that I took for seventy and ninety meters, and then I put a brand new face up, which I shot at thirty and fifty meters. And when it was all said and done, and I had shot that full round, one hundred and forty-four arrows, um, which a perfect a perfect score is fourteen forty, kind of the 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 bar. The extremely high bar for like a gold feet of stars, 1,400. There was a long time where there was only one person who ever did it, which was Clint Freeman. So, hi, Clint, if you're listening. I uh, miss you and love you, dude. But um, Clint set the bar when he shot the first 1,400, and 1,400s were very hard to achieve. Well, a 1,440 is possible, and that day I shot a 1,428, um, I'll have to look at the target face, but I'm pretty sure I shot, I can't really remember, but I think I shot like a, I think, gosh, I hate, I I don't want to, I can't remember what I shot, but I think I shot like a 354 at 90. Then I shot like a 358 at 70. And, you know, I shot, I know I missed a few at 50 and then I was clean at, at 30, but it was a 1428 round, which is almost like Well, it's complete. I've never heard of anyone doing it. I'm sure there's probably professional archers like me or Jesse Broadwater or someone like that that probably does that in practice. But for me, I was like, holy crap. I mean, I looked at that target and realized that between those two targets, there was only 12 holes out of the 10 ring. I was sitting there thinking to myself, you know, if I could shoot without thinking about it, every time I went to a tournament, it would be like, you know, people would think that I was like a Tiger Woods. But the reality is your mind steps in the, it steps in the way sometimes, even when you're good at recognizing what your mind does, there's still these roadblocks that your mind puts there. And it's really unfortunate that as athletes, not everyone is able to to have that moment where they really see what their full potential would be if they weren't getting in their own way.
1: Well, to that point, one of my, um, and it was later in my life, it was when I was a I quit playing professionally, and this will hit on that exactly. It's probably one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. Um, as a person and as an athlete, um, I used to play when the members would all you know, as the members would all want to go play, and they all thought I was going to shoot the course record every time I played with them. And there was a sense of, you know, for me it was a relaxed moment because I wasn't doing it to, to feed my family anymore. So I should be at the peak of relax, don't care. You know, being the competitive one, you know, you can see him grabbing the scorecard, writing your name on there, and you finish the first hole, it's like, what do you have there? You know, because they all want to say that they played with you during a time when you shot, you know, of a course record and it started to wear on me and I started to get to where I felt I started to feel more pressure in it and if someone would ask me to play and I'd be like nah I got too many lessons or nah and, and, and the golf course was a place that to me was the enemy I didn't want to go there it's it was a place where all I could do was going to be fail and I was like okay so Based on the definition of mental toughness, this should be no problem. I should do the sea field trust. I should I should be disciplined enough that these, these evil thoughts aren't gonna come in. They're not gonna enter it. And I would go out the next day and I'd get on the first hole and all I saw was hazard and houses. And <laughs> it would make me miserable. And I honestly, then I would I stopped playing tournaments. Um, I told my wife, I didn't want to play. Guys would ask me, my best friends would be like, nah, I just don't feel like it today. I got too much to do. And I'd always come up with excuses and I was on the range and the still, he's now one of my closest friends. He's a, a financial advisor came up and he said, you want to go play a few?" I said, but I just don't enjoy it anymore. He goes, what's wrong? I go, there's too many demons and villains out there. And it's just, I, I can't get, I can't get into the mindset that to execute a high quality golf shot. He said, get your bag, let's go. What holds the worst? I said, number 18. It's a dog leg right, there's water all down the left side, and there's OB stakes all down the right. And typically, the wind's blowing 30 from left to right out of bounds. So we're driving out there, and he says, um, you feel any tension? I go, yeah, I can feel tingling in my neck, and it's starting to get into my shoulders. And he said, on a scale of 1 to 10, I said, probably a 3. But we're just driving there. You know, we're not even there yet. Yeah. And so as we get closer, he goes, where are you now? I go, well, I can feel it in my elbows, and it's working down into my hands, and my neck is really starting to tighten up. I'm probably a 7. He said, squeeze your fist together. Make it, make it harder. Make it even worse. So I put the T in the ground. I'm trying to run my process, which is now, you know, no such thing. I'm, I'm such a wreck because all I can see is the ball going in the left weeds or the, the out of bounds. And he says, crank it up. What are you now? I said, a 10. He said, squeeze harder, harder, maintain it. Come on, maintain that intensity. These demons, they own you. Come on, maintain it. So I sat there for about another 45 seconds till I was so thoroughly exhausted that I just let down. And I couldn't squeeze my fists. I couldn't. He goes, what, what's it now? I go, "But I can't feel it. It's gone. He goes, what do you mean it's gone? I go, I'm at the peak of relaxation. He goes, how? I go, I don't know. He goes, Each, you processed it. You brought it in. You recognized that it was coming. You didn't fight it off. You didn't do any of that that you thought was mental toughness. You brought the emotion in. You brought in the fear. You brought the intensity, the anxiety. You brought it in. You embraced it. You processed it. Now it's gone. So that changed my life. I thought my I thought mental toughness was your ability not to let those in. And to me, mental toughness is is the, the ability to process that that emotion, that anxiety, that negativity. Let that thing come in because you can process it. And since that day, that had to be 13 years ago, I've never had the issue since. I understand that when I go out and play, and you understand now when I play, I don't play with Anna. I'm playing with PGA Tour pros that are coming in. I don't play much, so if it was ever going to come up, it would be, you know, when I'm on the first team, I'm, I'm at Oak tree national here in Ed it's one of the top three most difficult courses in the country. And so for me, that was an aha moment in my life that helped me understand how to process and not run from it, not be afraid of it, not don't let it own me. Don't be afraid of the ghost that you think is in the closet. Go open the door process that emotion and now you can deal with it and move on
0: and 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 honestly once you once you get to that point you will unlock a whole new level of your performance you know i think well i don't want to do it right
1: it's a hundred (laughs) percent i totally agree with you yeah that's right on
0: yeah you have to you have to realize that if if you're going to be in any moment of importance, there's going to be nerves there, and you know people ask me all the time how I, you know, how do you, how do you shoot a buck? You know, how how nervous were you when you shot a buck that big? And it, I get so excited to be in that moment now that I can almost, I almost feel like sometimes practice is not as intense for me because I'm not able to apply that type of pressure that i think is the adrenaline yeah, yeah. that yeah. pressure is yeah. what allows you to do something that you've never done before and feel a sense of accomplishment higher than you've ever felt before if you weren't nervous and if you weren't sitting there knowing that all of your chips are on the table and they could be gone and you, you know they could be gone and you could look like a fool if that wasn't the case when the when the card fell in your favor and you were able to make that shot happen or you're able to make a perfect shot on a buck of a lifetime, the sense of reward and the sense of feeling is so much higher that your appreciation for that moment is at a completely different level. And, you know, the other day, I'm just going to throw a shout-out here. I don't know if you followed my Instagram account, but the other day a follower um, – a follower to the knock on t v instagram um r j clockmaker is his is his handle um he actually made a post on facebook about a deer that he a buck that he had shot and it's i would i would um if you're listening to the podcast you'll need to go through my instagram and um go through my instagram and it's a video and you, you'll be able to tell it's a guy with his hat backwards, and he's holding onto a buck, and it's a video, and it's worth listening to because he was so excited that this is the biggest buck that he he's ever shot, and he said that although he knew it was the biggest buck he had ever shot, he made a perfect shot, and he said, you know, he pretty he gave me a good testimony. He said that because of the knock on podcast, he was able to go through this process and make a perfect shot and be able to watch the deer go down in seconds and he I can I could tell from that he felt so much reward from being able to accomplish that moment and to tackle that that opera you know that's an opportunity for buck fever so for you to be able to, to to tackle that and come out of that with that type of a a positive feeling, know that knowing that you 100% won that battle, that there was nothing better that you can do. There's just so much reward from that. And last year um, I had a good friend of mine hunt here with me, Christian Berg, who's the editor of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine. And Christian had buck fever like you won't believe. And um, I started working with him a few years ago, and I got him set up on uh, – Attention activated release. He was really hesitant to hunt with that um, just because he was worried about not being able to have control during a hunting situation. And I told him that the key to having control is to be willing to not have control, you know, to be willing to forget about that and let it go that's when you're going to have the best opportunity. And that's actually a hunt worth watching. If you go to the Knock On Archer YouTube channel, um, it's you would need to search Knock On Season 6, Episode 12, Long Wait, Short Stay. That's a really cool episode to be able to see, one, an awesome buck go down, but also see such a perfect shot and just how excited he was to be able to go from two years prior to that, not even being able to put his pin on a target, to then be able to have a buck of a lifetime come in and to be able to make an absolutely perfect, picture perfect shot using a release that takes all of your ability away to have control. You know, the only way you have control is if you focus on the process and not the trigger. So I just really feel like if people can start to understand this concept, they're going to start to feel, one, they're going to end up performing better when they least expect it, but they're also going to start to feel a sense of accomplishment much higher than what they've ever felt in the past.
1: Well, I think you keyed on two points there, nerves and control. Um, To me, Nerves is an increased awareness. It's a high level of awareness. That's all it is. Um, how you process that information is the key. So, and then the other is control. I remember at, at Jim McLean Golf School in um, California, we had a lot of corporate clinics from Semi Valley. When the Semi Valley was rolling, we had a lot of successful people. And you're exactly right. The, the most difficult ones were the CEOs because their lifestyle and their personality is all controlling and they thought they could come out and do the same with golf and all, all it was was max frustration. So you would encourage them to drink, do something to get out of their comfort element. So they would just release and give you control. And once they could experience that, it, it helped them reach a, a euphoric state that they, they'd never been in because everything in their life is all, in, all controlling. So yeah, I think those are two valid points about control and nerves. And if you can learn how to process and understand that the nerves part is just, you know, I notice more around me, I'm, I'm at a higher level of adrenaline, but that's not a bad thing. You know, it's like Tiger Woods told a buddy of mine, he said, when I walk into the locker room and I look around and they say, Hey, he just looks at guys and goes, you don't want your nervousness. I'll take it. You don't want yours. I'll take it because nervousness means you've got a chance to do something special. Mm-hmm. If you're in a nervous situation, you've got a chance to do probably something great or something you've never done before. So you should enjoy that moment, process that emotion, and don't want to get in the way of executing, and you're going to do great things. You're going to get to that that place you're talking about where you achieve something you've never done, and it, it brings a sense of satisfaction like you've never felt before.
0: Yeah, hundred I percent, I 100% agree with that. Um, hey, I wanted to ask you a question before I let it slip my mind because I know my brain holds information for about four seconds, so I gotta s- stop ya. Have <laughs> you. Ever, have, you <laughs> have you ever heard? Um, I, I think there was, I don't know if it was a book or what, but somewhere along the line, I got asked many years ago by someone I think who had read a book about specifically about this, or maybe, yeah, I think I'm sure it was a book but i continually just think about this because i'm kind of really torn on whether or not i agree with it but the basic theory is that there's a certain amount of reps that you do on something to truly perfect it do you think that's the case and it was something um, like it was something along the lines of once you've done something x amount of times you know you're, you're to the point where your bot, where your mind, and the basis of the book was just that you have to do something so many times until you're truly perfect at it. Which I, can, I mean, in a way, I really disagree because I want to say, well, what way are you getting your reps? Are you are you getting are you getting reps with negative aspects? 90% of the time or do you are you making a negative a negative rep 10% of the time or you know cuz I'm just I'm a big believer on it's not just practice that makes perfect um and a gudge actually our friend when we say gudge it's a friend of ours Eric Gudgel um we both love Eric and um gudge is on my on the knock on TV show quite often he's a super super close friend of both of ours um but eric i want to have eric on the podcast one time because he's just like the most bubbly dude i've ever met you you would think that he was on about six red bulls at a time but i'd be afraid if he ever drank one honestly i'm sure he doesn't but if he did i mean he'd probably implode but um he had a really cool Cool thing. One time, I had said something about you know, practice doesn't make perfect; it's perfect practice that makes perfect. And he had something that he had told me he said, you know, my my coach here in town is coaching. Um, I think it was Grant, and he he said that he has some kind of saying that in a way ties into that, but it was almost better. I wish I could remember what it was, but I just want. I'm just curious of your feeling on if reps a certain number of reps will eventually translate into you actually perfecting something.
1: Well what it was is it's the book I think is um if it's the same one is called Talent Code. And what it the premise of it, John, is that if you look at Beethoven and some of these prodigies, they started and, and that's where it came from. They started from like ridiculously early in their life, like two and three and and the premise of the book is that they had talent, but they had ridiculous amount of reps. So yep. they were trying to they're they're trying to sell you on the fact that it takes ridiculous amount of reps. But I think with technology and the study, more money being spent on biomechanics, and we're in an era of of information. I mean, that's how you know I've I've reconnected with you is through podcasts and we never had any of that. So I I believe back then that was the only way there was no source of instruction. Um, but I think in today's day and age, don't get me wrong. I think the reps are important, but I think we're making smarter reps. I think there's better information when you do make the reps. So I don't think you have to make as many personally. Um, especially if you're, if you're paying attention to the details, of the rep and learning from each one and heck I have a, I have a machine that sits in our teaching lab, a $30,000 machine that tells me everything I know and is accurate to a foot at 400 yards for ball flight. I mean, you can never pick any of that up with eye or video. So yeah. Oh, yeah. the student gets that information and can learn from it. And me as an instructor knows which direction to, the student needs to go. Is it the angle of attack of the club? Is it the swing direction? Is it the face angle? You know, what is it? So I'm not searching around anymore. So, yeah, that that book is called Talent Code, and it was based on a high level of reps. But like I said, I think in today's day and age, um, you can get better quicker because the information is more readily available with accuracy. So your feedback is better.
0: Well, that's awesome. Well, do do you think if people are imprinting negative, though, it's almost like you're going backwards just as fast as you're going forwards?
1: I think so, but from my perspective, and I know from yours, when I teach a high-level player, if my information's not right on, I'll get the feedback, and they'll give me the feedback, um, because the ball won't respond, they'll say, I feel like I'm doing it, if I validate that on some of my stuff, and they are, and the ball's not going where it should be, we've got an issue, you know, so the information has to be very accurate for high-level players and there better be a quick response for improvement to that ball or they're not going to continue on down that road because they've just lost confidence in me.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And I don't know if it's the same in archery.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. And I also feel like one very negative thing that that really is happening too frequently in archery is students are getting super dependent or archers, especially young ones, the coaches start to ingrain this mentality where the archer, I see these archers make a shot and they're immediately looking back to the coach and the coach is just looking through a spotting scope. And it's just, it's just ingraining this mentality of only where the arrow lands is what's important. And I'm, I'm so far away from that. Like I would rather be at the target with the spotting scope on the shooter. And I like put – literally let the shooter shoot past me and I am i don't even really want to see the shot. People really get weirded out about that when I work with them as a coach. And they they shoot and they're sitting there looking at me and I'm just like staring at them. And, I, and they'll just be like, I think that one's a little out. And I'm like, oh, is it? You know, like I'm, yeah. I, I have no, I I do I do not care. I don't if they if they do the process that I teach on the line. I know I know for myself that the result downrange will take care of itself. But as long as that focus goes downrange, then your ability to truly be repetitious in your process. I think, goes downrange as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, that I talked to you about this when I say a couple of weeks ago. I do a little personality profile um, because the way that they look at stuff, they're like my, uh, one of my mentors said, you, you're going to have people that just want to get in the race car and they're going to drive the wheels off of it, and they'll finish the race as long as the wheels stay on and the motor's running, and they don't care. They're going to maximize everything they can get out of that car, and then you're going to have the guy... That, oh, they go through the first, you know, first practice lap and it's like, oh, it's pushing a little. Oh, it's pulling a little. And then they go back out and they need to be, and I teach players, and you probably deal with that in the archery world. From when they go to bed, that thing better be purring like a kitten and running perfectly. And they're going to sleep well and they're going to probably have a good day. And then you have people where, John, just make sure the bow has the strings attached, the loop's not going to come off, make sure the sight's not rattling and the pin somewhere, or my peep somewhere close. And they're going to shoot pretty damn good for what they have because that's their mentality. So some of that has to do with, you know, the mentality of that mentality of that individual. Are they analytical and need to know everything? Or are they just more see, feel, where just show me, John, let me feel it. And I'll talk to you next week and give you a report on how it's going. And then the other guy won't doesn't want to leave you until he feels like, well, John, my my pinky finger feels a little bit of tension in it. Can we keep working on it? And you're like, Are you kidding me? You know, but that's <laughs> his mentality. And and you probably see both like I do. And you just got to make your adjustments in how you teach that individual.
0: Yep. Oh yeah. Every individual is different, and recognizing the. Yeah. I mean, you, you do, you do profiles. Um, I, you know, I normally when I'm with teams, I, you know, I don't have, I have to watch the student. And then t- a lot of times I work hand in hand with the coaches that are full-time coaches for the national team or for the Olympic teams. And th- those Coaches are around their personalities enough to sometimes understand. Sometimes the coaches are doing it wrong, and I realize that how the coach is addressing that student is really what's um, what's holding them back. But being able to recognize the personality and the learning style of that, that particular person and what their personality type is, that's the key to getting people to actually get to their performance level is... Knowing those finite ways to navigate into this you know the center of their brain to be able to to give them something that they can relate to. Um, you know, I think there's been a few times where I was working with Rogan, and I actually tried to make a reference, even though I'm, I don't know martial arts. There was times where I made a reference to <clears throat> martial arts, and he was immediately able to be like, "Oh yeah, okay, I, yeah, I see what you're saying now." Because I would say, you know, it's a lot like if you were to grab and I don't, I don't know what the what it is, but I, somehow or another, he was making the same mistake and he wasn't recognizing it. But once I was able to connect it with something that he really mentally attached to, then. It's been like a non-issue ever since that. So I mean I think I think being able to find those little details is super important. And I guess one thing uh, before I let you chime in again, I did I just looked it up quick um, when I talked about me being in the zone and practicing with just a systematic, Thing And my breathing and just how that whole shot happens going through my process. My eyes flow into the target. I'm breathing. I'm drawing back. My eyes acquiring the target. Kind of once I close my one eye to confirm my peep and scope alignment opens up. My air is going out. And then the shot is naturally going off, and then I'm going through a reload. If you want to watch that whole round, um, you'd have to go to the Knock on Archer YouTube channel and or just search YouTube for John Dudley Archer 300 round, and you'll be able to see that if you want to. Um, I've got a – is there anything else you wanted to chime in with, Ege?
1: No, I was just going to say I think the magic, you know, when you see those coaches, it's a tough deal. I think – the magic to coaching for me now, when I get those younger kids, is not not dying to share technique. It's dying more to learn about what makes them tick. How do I how do I take and assess and target? Make sure I get the right personality and learning style, and how do I allow that to how do I allow that individual to overachieve? Because that that's the key: um, getting a personality, identifying what it is, their learning style, and help them overachieve and. And I think that's what some of the greatest coaches on the planet, the Shashevskis of the world, I think they're great at. I don't think they've changed their teaching technique at all. I think they've understood more about how to identify this kid from Memphis or this kid from L.A. or this kid from the Bronx, assess their personality and get them to overachieve. I think that's the magic.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, EJ, where can people find – are you even – taking on any extra work. I don't think you are right now. I know you and I need to, you drew Iowa. You're not hunting with me, um, but you're hunting close to me. So you're going to be here in a few weeks. You're going to be close by. And um, we need to, let's hook up and we need to hook up and do another podcast together. I've got like, I swear if I didn't have to meet someone for breakfast here, um and it's it's my local game warden so if (laughs) if i blow him off i don't want him like stalking me down so um yeah i've got to meet with the dnr about some some things that i'm working on them with for the kids um but we need to hook up again but where can people find you uh if they want to look at you're
1: in a tree (laughs) this time of year in a tree you know, I'm on Facebook a little bit, but I travel a lot, you know, John, kind of like you do, and and one thing my dad told me, you know, when I decided I was going to quit professionally and, and pursue a family is that he said to me, he said, please don't miss your kids growing up, because he, he worked so hard to provide for us that he kind of missed some of that, so uh, you know, I value that, so a lot of my time is, is with my 16-year-old daughter and my, my 12-year-old son, I cherish those moments, so... um and then I travel a lot with still teaching some and and you know down the road we're going to talk about I'm sure a company that I started with some entrepreneur minded clients that I had from the golf industry um and so that keeps me busy as well but um I hang out at Oak Tree National in Edmond Oklahoma and, and I have a link through their website at oaktreenational.com and um so that that's how they can get a hold of me or or uh, like I said, this time of year, everyone knows that I'm probably in a tree because hunting and, and fishing is such a huge part of my life that uh, that uh, this time of year, that's that's what I do.
0: Well, thanks so much for uh, skipping your morning workout and coming on, brother. I appreciate it. This was uh, this was really fun. I love. I'm always I'm always torn because I really want to have guests on, but a lot of times I'm answering so many questions and it's it's really hard to find people that um that can really go hand in hand with some of the technical questions and stuff that I that I have answered. But from this aspect, um, you're a sensei and like perfect guest, man. I had an awesome time. I appreciate it so much, and uh, can't wait to for you to come up here and. Come by the, come come see the new shooting school and everything, and and uh, we'll do a podcast. And if I get my new podcast studio done, then maybe you'll be the first one to jump in there with me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, I appreciate it, John. Like I said, I uh, it makes it fun to be with people that are passionate about learning and passionate about sharing because you get people that have some qualities of one, but not not all of them, and so. It's a pleasure for me to be on, and I know your information's great because, like I said, I haven't, you haven't helped me with my technique in seven or eight years, and just listening to your podcast, it's, it's improved dramatically, and I can say that from my other buddies that I've put onto your podcast, so uh, I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. You're good at it, and it was a pleasure for me to be on the show.
0: Alright man, well thank you so much and knock on everybody Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com